Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Our first passage today is Genesis 15, 1 through 12, and 17 through 18. It's found on page 13 in your pew Bibles. Genesis 15, 1 through 12, 17 and 18. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Moving on to 17 and 18. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from Psalm 27, found on page 550 in your pew Bible. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemy who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. Good morning, friends online. Glad you could join us. Uh, My name is Jamie Smith. Uh, I am not a pastor, uh, but I am a member here at Sherman Street. My day job is corrupting the youth by teaching philosophy at Calvin College, Uh, but every once in a while I pinch hit. The two texts that we've just heard from are, um, and thank you, read so wonderfully, um, are two of the texts from the lectionary readings for the second Sunday of Lent, which is where we are. Uh, if, you're, if you're new to Sherman Street and you're unfamiliar with the lectionary, first of all, if you've been around Sherman Street for a while, you can sort of roll your eyes right now and like Jamie's on his lectionary hobby horse. But let me, let me tell, if you don't know about this, let me tell you why. The lectionary is a sort of curriculum for the entire worldwide church to encounter the entirety of scripture over a cycle every three years. And so, uh, um, and then during the seasons of Lent and Advent and Epiphany and so on, the readings are keyed to the journey that we're on with Jesus in that liturgical season. So, So one thing to just keep in mind is that Christians all over the world today are engaging and hearing and encountering the exact same text that we are thinking about this morning. And so one of the things that we, I want to, so you could ask the question, well, why are we focusing on this Genesis text? I want to focus on the Genesis text. Why we're in Lent, why would we focus on Genesis? Well, actually, also, one of the, the really distinct convictions of the Reformed tradition is that the entirety 
of this book is one in which Christ speaks to us. That is, it is a deep conviction of our faith that the gospel is not just found in the gospels. So what I want us to do this morning as we're, as we're uh, particularly wrestling with this passage from Genesis chapter 15, I want you to just think with me. Where's the gospel in this text? Where's, what's the good news that God has for us in this passage from Genesis? Now, and I, I'm going to be honest, we're doing like kind of straight up Bible study here this morning. Um, you need a little bit of context to really appreciate what's happening in Genesis 15. So try to remember, in Genesis 12, just a few chapters before this, the Lord came to Abram with a command, which was to go. To leave Ur of the Chaldees, where he had lived for 75 years, and God comes to him and says, go, become a migrant, exile yourself from your homeland, and journey to the place that I am making for you. And the most remarkable phrase in that chapter, verse 4 of chapter 12, and Abram went. Abram answers the call. And this is the beginning. That is the beginning of what is going to be now a very, very special relationship. It's really the beginning of Israel's election by God. It's Israel has been chosen. Abram has been chosen. And so God is making this promise, we don't know why, to this family, to this tribe, to this clan. And we hear this kind of, there's something scandalous about this. Like, why them? Why Abram? Why his lineage? And I get, I think we, we want to sort of sense the scandal of this the scandal of being chosen. And it's exactly the question that we are meditating on from John chapter 6 this week, when Jesus says, have I not chosen you? So now, okay, we come to Genesis 15, and Yahweh revisits Abram and, and reaffirms this promise, right? But what I want you to hear is already the first hint of gospel in this passage, when, when God appears to Abram in a vision, his first words, I think, should sound very familiar to us. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Friends, I, I'm more and more convinced that that fear not is it's like the chorus of the gospel. It's the refrain that is sung over and over and over again when God meets his people. Fear not. Do not be afraid. And then we get to verse 2, which is, but. <laughs> but, however, Abram has some questions. He's not sure about this. He has some questions. And so he says, but Abram says, but sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? Right? God is making these promises, these claims. He hears it. And Abram has questions because he doesn't see how this is going to work. Now, again, in that same spirit of hearing the whole gospel everywhere in the Bible, I want you to notice there's a really, really interesting parallel between Abram and Mary. 
There's such a fascinating parallel between Abram and Mary. Do you remember in Luke chapter 1 when, when the angel visits Mary and says something stupendous and incredible? First of all, it's prefaced with, do not be afraid. And then he tells her this remarkable, remarkable story of what's going to unfold. And Mary has a question. Mary's question is, how can this be? How's this going to work? How could this happen? That, it turns out, actually, is also Abram's question. And I want us to realize, I'm, I think we should be sympathetic. God makes this promise. It seems like an outlandish promise. It doesn't, it doesn't really make much sense. And so we can enter into these human recipients are recipients of this promise. And they're kind of like, okay, but I don't see how it works. <laughs> I don't see how this is going to work. I don't have any children, Abram says. How can you be making this promise about generations to come? Explanation here is always elusive. And God never responds by laying out the mechanics of fulfillment. There's a way in which God kind of like doesn't answer the question that's asked. He doesn't lay out the mechanics of Fulfillment, and that's precisely why the response that's asked for, that's invited, that's required, is faith. God, God takes Abram outside and he says, look up at the night sky. Look at the stars. I promise your descendants will be as innumerable as these points of light. God doesn't explain. God promises. And every promise calls for trust. And so here's where we get the kind of linchpin verse in this passage. And actually, it turns out to be a linchpin verse for the entire sweep of the biblical narrative. Look at verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Some, some past, I kind of, is it King James? Reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the promise and it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. This is why Abram is the father of all who believe. Abram is the father, the Bible tells us, of all who trust. Of all those who entrust themselves to the God who promises. Mary's in that tradition. We are invited to be in that tradition. It's not because of what Abram does. He hasn't earned God's care or love or choice or election. His, his believing is actually a way of giving himself over to God's character. Something of who God is. It's, it's not so much, it's not even so much that Abram like believes some claim that's true. It's not even that Abram believes, okay, I think I understand now how this is going to work itself out. And so I'm going to trust that this is happening. It's actually nothing like that. It's much more that Abram entrusts himself to a God who is truthful and faithful, who is a promise keeper. So you, that verse in, in verse 6, Abram believed in the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. 
Does that ring any bells for anybody? Does anybody hear? It turns out the entirety of Romans chapter 4 is built around that verse. Can we look at chapter, Romans chapter 4 for just a second? Keep your, finger, keep your finger in Genesis chapter 15. But I would like, I want us to see this really interesting dynamic that's going on in Genesis chapter 4. Because what, what Paul says, the Apostle Paul, he builds the entire argument for justification by faith around this verse. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, you'll see, what does Scripture say? Abraham, little edit there, Abraham, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? And, and the entirety of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4, which is it's not about who you're born to, it's not about the works that you accomplish, it's none of those things justify you or save you, it is entirely entrusting ourselves to the God who saves. That's why all of us are daughters and sons and children of Abraham if we believe. But here's, I have to tell you, there was a sort of unsettling experience reading Romans chapter 4 for me this week. Because I want you to jump down to Romans chapter 4 and look at verse 18. And don't tell pastors Jen and Tony I'm doing this because what I'm doing might be slightly heretical. But I, I just want to uh, um, look at look what happens in Romans chapter 4. So, so Paul is building this entire theology of justification by faith around Abram's believing. And then he says, look at verse 18. Against all hope, Abram in hope believed and so became the father of many nations just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding what was, uh, I'm sorry, regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Paul tells the story of Abram who believes and never wavers and is fully persuaded and it's completely committed and trusting that God is going to work this out. Um, I don't recognize Paul's Abram. I don't recognize Paul's Abraham. Because if you jump back now to Genesis 15, let's be honest. Uh, Abram doesn't believe for very long. Abram is not fully persuaded for very long. Honestly, friends, I, 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 I really don't want to get in trouble, but Paul's doing a little bit of revisionist hagiography about Abraham here. Because, in fact, when you come back to Genesis, in the very next chapter, Abram's faith and trust wavers so badly, so egregiously, that in fact, what happens, we see this profound failure to believe that turns into an egregious act of exploitation. So when Sarah still hasn't conceived... 
Together, they conspire to make God's promise come true. They're going to figure this out. But the way they do this, friends, in Genesis 16 is by treating another human being as chattel and as property. When Abram conceives a child with Hagar, the enslaved African woman in their household, this is, this is not some, you know, ancient version of Abram expanding his harem or something like this. This is a husband and a wife treating Hagar as an incubator for their schemes. This is, friend, this is not an affair. This is rape. This is Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And their subsequent treatment of Hagar and her son Ishmael, where they banish them, only deepens the injustice of, let's be honest, Abram's very wavering faith. It's precisely because Abraham is not fully persuaded that he undertakes these exploitive machinations to, of all things, make God's promise come true. How twisted and contorted even a believing heart can be. How twisted and corrupted even my heart can become. And yet, and yet, here is how God's love and faithfulness and promise-keeping is truly scandalous. Because God's promises never depended on Abraham's performance. God's promises never depended on Abraham's performance. And in fact, in fact, when God makes this covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he knows everything that's coming. He's surprised by none of it. He makes the promise knowing all the failures and weaknesses and injustice. And so in that sense, Paul is absolutely right in Romans chapter 4 when he says, God justifies the ungodly. That's me. That's us. In fact, covenant, this this is a free footnote, covenant, God's promise-making covenant character is so woven into the fabric of who God is that in fact if you get a chance this afternoon look at Romans or Genesis 16 how does God respond to the injustice to Hagar he makes a promise to her she is a parallel of Abram and he says look up your descendants will be innumerable as well God sees Hagar and makes a promise. That's the kind of God that we worship. It's not the great character of the people we are in the lineage of. It is the incredible character of the God that we are entrusting ourselves to. So, where's, where's the gospel in this text? Where's the good news? What does God want us to hear this morning? As Eric was, was reminding us, this season of Lent here at Sherman Street, we, we're considering, uh, one of the things we're considering is what do we need to let go of? Well, maybe for some of us, we need to let go of our own schemes. 
we, we need to actually let go of our conspiring to imagine we're smarter than the God who makes the promise. We need to let go of the idea that we are so enlightened that we know what God wants and we know how to make it happen. We need to let go of the insidious sense of our own righteousness. And friends, I hope it's okay if I say, I think that this is perhaps a special temptation for those of us, and I'm including myself, who have probably tend to think of ourselves as sort of enlightened and progressive. Because I think what happens is we think that, oh, well, we see it all now. And that God kind of has a special affection for us because we know we're really on God's side. And we need to see, we need to still see ourselves in Abram. Not just his faith, but his failures. And then realize that God's covenant with Abram is, was never a reward for his believing We need to let go of the sense that God's promises are earned by our righteousness. That is such an ingrained temptation of human beings. But for others of us, for all of us, I actually think the good news in this passage is something even more profound. Friends, you can let go of the sense that God's love depends on your performance. Let that go. God's love does not depend on your performance. This is the truly scandalous and marvelous and unbelievable thing about God. He doesn't love you because of what you do. He loves you for who you are. And the only thing The only thing that explains why God loves you is this inscrutable, unsearchable truth because he chose you. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He chose you. He chose you and he promises to never leave you or forsake you. And God keeps promising to choose you over and over and over again for eternity. So, You can, I can, let go of trying to earn his love. You can let go of your sense of inadequacy. You can let go of your shame. You can let go of your embarrassment. You can let go of that voice in your head. It's probably a religious voice that keeps telling you you don't deserve to be loved by God. It's not true. Let that. To flip a line from Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, deserves got nothing to do with it. There was nothing in Abram that warranted God's promise making, and Abram wasn't chosen because he deserved it. Abram, and in fact, Abram proved that over and over and over and over again. God's covenant is an outflow of God's loving kindness. It's not a reward for our performance, which is precisely why it can't ever be lost. The promise is as steadfast, is as, steadfast as God. That's why, look, one last time, Genesis 15. 
Do you see that weird thing that happens at the end that Joel was reading? This weird ceremony that takes place? Actually, the gospel is right there. What, happened, what we're seeing in this passage where there's the animals are lined up and cut in half and all this, this kind of strange stuff is really, it's, it's an ancient Near Eastern ritual for ratifying a covenant, for making a treaty or alliance. It's, it's this kind of funky ritual to establish a covenant relationship. And what's so strange and peculiar about this particular version of it is that actually when the covenant is made, one of the parties is dead asleep. Abram falls into this deep sleep and actually all of this happens and Abram isn't even awake. You know what that made me think of? Baptism. Think of all the little children, some of you, who were baptized right here. Now, you probably weren't asleep, or you woke up pretty quickly. But let's be honest, you were oblivious. There's nothing you were doing <laughs> when the mark of God's covenant promise of grace and redemption and never-ending never love was sealed and signified. And like Abram, who's deep asleep, what happens in the covenant renewal ceremony is God takes it all on God's self. It's all on God. And when we, in our sort of, you know, infant oblivion, are the recipients of promises that we couldn't possibly have earned, couldn't possibly even have chosen. There's no sense of reward. That sacrament is a reminder that also in the new covenant, it has nothing to do with us, and God takes it all on. And so, as we take up this sacrament, the Lord's Supper, it's a feast that's provided by a king, and the invitation is an outflow of his love. It's never a sign that we are worthy it's never, it deserves, got nothing to do with it. Indeed, in fact, I actually really love a part of the invitation that Pastor Jen and Tony often use. You, you, this will sound familiar to you. So come to this table, you who have much faith and you who would like to have more. You have try, who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed. Come. It is Jesus who invites us to meet him here. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So friends, let go of your need to know and figure it out, the temptation to be smarter than God. Let go of our own righteousness, but let go of the lie that only the righteous can come. And trust yourself to the God whose fire walks ahead of you, who keeps covenant with us promise breakers. Because God is offering the gift of inexplicable, unearned grace. Above all, be not afraid to be loved by that God. Let's pray. Gracious God, what else could we call you? Your love is mad and inexplicable and unexplainable, and yet we are 
grateful so profoundly that you know us, that you see us, that you made promises to us that you will never break. Thank you for being a God who loves us as we are in all of our mess and failures. And thank you for inviting us to sit with you at this table and to be nourished by your life. Speak to us and move into us now. In Christ's name, amen.